Tonight's reading is uh, Daniel chapter 1, and that can be found on page 884 in the Church Bibles. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Thanks very much, Chris, for reading that passage to us. 
Let's just pray together. Lord, as we look into your word, we pray that we would behold our God and seeing you, that we would adore you with the whole of our being, for your name's sake. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you felt utterly bewildered and like a fish out of water. Now, it's happened to me on a couple of occasions, but the worst of them was in uh, 2002 when I was at a conference in Taipei, which I noticed appeared in the uh, corner of the slide uh, of China earlier on, uh, the, the capital city of uh, Taiwan. And on an afternoon of free time, I decided to go and visit the city zoo. And I had a tube map in English, and so I got on at the station outside my hotel. But when I got out the other end at the station where the zoo was, instead of emerging into an open area where I thought I'd see the gates of the zoo, as I got out, uh, what I actually saw was uh, something like this, a bustling city street with every sign uh, in Chinese, of which uh, I knew not uh, a single word or a single letter. I could have done with your help, uh, Ed, actually, uh, when, I, when I was there, but uh, I, I couldn't see uh, any other uh, foreigners like me there around, and my sense of direction is so appallingly bad that I knew it was a bad idea to try and find my own way to the zoo, so I simply went down the tube again and back to my hotel and never saw the zoo. Now, that momentary sense of alienation and lostness in a foreign country that I very briefly experienced that day must be uh, as nothing in comparison to the culture shock which hit uh, Daniel and his three friends when they were forcibly removed from their own homes in uh, Judah and taken off into captivity in Babylon. And the book of Daniel, which we're looking at this evening, has six chapters recounting stories about Daniel and his friends in exile, and then six chapters of Daniel's prophetic visions of the future. But the central theme of the whole book is one and the same, and it's this. Even when world events may give us the impression that evil is winning the day, God is still in control, and his kingdom is the one which will ultimately prevail. And how we need to remind ourselves of that central truth at the beginning of 2024. Now, the first chapter mentions God specifically three times at key points in the story, and they'll form my three key points in explaining it this evening. And the first of those is in the opening paragraph in verses 1 to 2. And that's the point, that in the face of continual rebellion, God gave Judah into the hand of Babylon. Let's just look at those verses there. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off, 
to the temple of his God in Babylon and put it in the treasure house of his God. Sadly, God's people do not always behave as such. And in the course of our journey through the Bible over the past six months, we've seen time and time again how the Jewish nation behaved just like the pagan nations all around them. And how, because of the Lord's love for them, he disciplined them. And Daniel certainly knew the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, who God had sent to warn Judah some years earlier about what happened here. Jeremiah 22, verses 6 to 9, says this about the house of Judah. I will surely make you a wasteland, like a town not inhabited. I will send destroyers against you, each man with his weapon, and they will cut up your fine cedar beams and throw them into the fire. People from many nations will pass by the city, and they will ask one another, why has the Lord done such a thing to this great city? And the answer will be, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and have worshipped other gods. It's a very serious matter to persistently rebel against God. And it's serious because it always harms us in the long run and it gives cause for those who do not know God to rightly question the reality of our faith. And a further consequence of importance to Daniel here, which he relates in verse 2, is this little detail about the articles of the temple being taken to Babylon. Now, those articles were sacred or holy in the sense of being dedicated to God and to be used exclusively in the temple in Jerusalem. But now they were being displayed in the treasure house of a pagan god in Babylonia. And the gold and silver that was taken from the temple reappear again in chapter 5 when they are used by Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's successor, in order to be used as drinking cups for his guests to get drunk at a pagan banquet. And this then reaps a terrible and immediate judgment from God for doing so. And Babylon is symbolic throughout the whole of the Bible for excess luxury and pride. And here in chapter 1 that we're looking at this evening are four exiled Jewish lads, probably no more than about 14, who've been plunged into this alien place where the pagan king has chosen them, along with others, to be groomed in a three-year training program to serve in his palace staff. But God is at work in them. And in the next section, we see that in the face of resolute faithfulness, God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Verse 8 reads, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And this verse seems to me to be the key turning point of the whole story. Firstly, the word resolve here demonstrates a deeply committed 
inner determination. And it reminded me when I read it of the determination of our Lord Jesus when we read in uh, the book of Isaiah chapter 50 and in Luke chapter 9 that he, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, set his face like a flint to go up to Jerusalem, knowing all the suffering that lay there ahead for him. And ultimately, of course, his death upon the cross for us. Now, Daniel also would have known the danger that he faced in defying the king's regulations. But his heart was set on honoring his heavenly king. In a similar way, the apostle Peter in the New Testament tells his readers to have no fear of those who seek to harm you, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Now, of course, even when we are doing that, we can be caught unawares and fall into sinful acts. But if our minds are not fixed daily on the Holy One to start with, we are much, much more vulnerable in falling into compromise and acting out on our sinful desires. Now, Daniel resolved in his heart not to defile himself over the royal food and wine. But before we explore that, notice that there's no indication in verse 7 that he and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, make any protest about their enforced change of name. Now, this is all the more surprising because in the Hebrew Bible, names had deep spiritual meaning. And all four of these teenagers' names incorporate references to God. Daniel's name, for example, means God is my judge. And moreover, the new names that they were all given are believed by uh, Assyriologists and uh, uh, archaeologists and uh, those who study uh, Bible languages um, that, uh, to contain references to, to, to Babylonian uh, gods. And there is, I think, an important reason why even so the four friends accepted those new names just as Joseph did when he served under Pharaoh in Egypt in Genesis 41. And the reason is that they could not themselves enforce in a foreign country what others called them. It simply wasn't plausible to even attempt to try to change that. However, what they ate and drank did to some extent still remain within their control. So it was reasonable to make a stand on that. And that is what they did with considerable skill and courage. If the official in charge of them was afraid of losing his head if he granted their request to eat only vegetables, it's certain that the four friends themselves would have lost their lives as well. But why exactly they took their stand over the food and wine um, is a subject of some debate. Certainly, the Old Testament food laws and the kosher method of slaughter would not be adhered to in Babylon, but that doesn't explain about the wine. And if the objection was to food offered to idols, which they probably were in uh, 
then that would have surely applied to the vegetables as well, which they were prepared to eat. But I think the explanation is more to do with not wanting to be dependent on the royal food and wine that came from the king's table and sharing, as it were, the same table as Nebuchadnezzar. The same food and wine, uh, incidentally, that, uh, uh, as we've mentioned in chapter 5, uh, fueled uh, all the wine, fueled drunken parties and, and pagan celebrations. Now, whatever the precise reason, God was pleased with Daniel's stand over it and gave him and his friends favor and compassion from Ashpenaz and his staff. And one Bible commentator has even suggested that it's even possible that the uh, guard gave the lads uh, his own vegetables in exchange for the royal food so that no questions were asked about food going missing or going back to the royal kitchens. Uh, but be that the case or not, uh, notice that Daniel is actually prepared when he sees the fear of uh, the official over uh, dying to have a compromise of a 10-day trial, which he suggests uh, in the light of the uh, danger concerned. And uh, if uh, it had been found out, of course, that a group in the charge of these officials had become obviously unwell or was sickening, questions uh, might be asked. Now, taking a stand for the Lord in a secular society is never easy. A Christian friend of mine has a senior role in the film industry. And some time back now, he was asked to take a leading role in making a film, which he felt for the first time ever in his career, and he'd never done anything else, um, he could not do. And he was deeply distressed about it because he loved his job. Even some professing Christians told him he'd be absolutely mad to raise any objections as he might lose his post. But he prayed about it and felt that he simply had to take a stand, and so he did. And he was summoned in front of the deputy chief executive for an extremely difficult meeting, and not a single colleague in a studio that employed thousands supported him. But God showed him favor, and within a day or two, he had an email saying that he would uh, not have to work directly on the film and they would move him to other projects. However, he was advised that in his senior position, if difficulties did arise on that film, which those were working on it, needed his advice over, he would be required to give it. And he accepted that compromise after praying it over. As the months passed... Several colleagues came to him privately and thanked him for having spoken out because they said they also shared the same concerns about the film. My friend, as of today, remains in his role and has since been offered promotion. When we have the favor of God, we do not need the praise of others. This, too, was the experience of Daniel and his friends. At the end of the day, we read that they did better and looked better than those who had continued on the royal diet. 
and they were allowed to continue the rest of their three years training on the vegetables. Just in passing, I think it is important to take note of the fact that later on in his career, Daniel presumably did eat quite lavish food, including meat, and drank wine, because he makes a specific point in chapter 10, verse 3, of saying that he stopped doing these things in order to fast and pray. And I raise this issue because in preparing this sermon, uh, it struck me that with the exception of the book of Genesis, Daniel is the most vehemently attacked book in the whole of the Bible as being unreliable. And this apparent inconsistency about Daniel's diet is just one example. Um, And there are a few others, even in this chapter, that I haven't mentioned. However, none of them, in my view, affect the integrity of the book. And all can be explained in the way that I've mentioned regarding Daniel's diet. And I certainly think that's uh, a red herring. This is also because Jeremiah, in chapter 29, which I read from earlier, also records the Lord commanding the exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon to build houses and live in them and plant gardens and live off their produce. In other words, to live as normally as they could. And Daniel, by this time, in chapter 10, is an adult, presumably living in his own home where he can pray three times a day openly and is himself in charge of what he eats, rather than being dependent on the royal kitchens anymore. In this chapter here, however, in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends are risking their lives in order to keep themselves from dependency on food and wine associated with pagan excess, and God rewards them for it. And contrary to Ashpenaz's fears, the four lads, rather than wilting, were more handsome and hunky on ten days of veggie than those who'd been fed on the royal diet. And not only that, but my third point, in the face of an alien culture, in verse 17, God gave them knowledge and understanding. As a result of their courageous stand to distance themselves from Nebuchadnezzar's attempts to assimilate them into a pagan culture, God rewarded the four friends by giving them extremely sharp minds. The Bible tells us consistently that God honors those who honor him and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And here is a clear outworking of that principle in this chapter. God gives them both knowledge and understanding. But there is a difference, I think, between the two. Knowledge is about the accumulation of facts, whereas understanding is more connected with what we do about those facts, how we interpret them and integrate them wisely in a complicated world. And it's interesting that throughout the Bible, Christ himself is often identified with wisdom. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, declares St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24, and again in verse 30 in the same chapter. 
although being wise in our own eyes nearly always leads us astray, we should all seek to grow in the reverence of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And when we do fear God in this sense, then we become less afraid of other things. Now, the literature and learning mentioned in verse uh, 17 here, uh, to which God gave these four young men uh, knowledge, this was Babylonian literature. And they saw that God, through Jeremiah, had um, commanded the exiles in the uh, passage we read from to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord for its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, if we are to do that kind of ministry, we need to understand what makes the surrounding culture tick. And that is why it's important to know its stories, read its novels, see its art, hear its music, as well as facts about its history and politics. Now, of course, we must do this prayerfully and with great um, uh, uh, circumspection. But these young men were not afraid to engage with pagan literature and learning because they knew their God. And knowing God enabled them to do the great exploits that we read about later in the book. But it all began with this one resolution to remain undefiled by the royal food and wine in an alien culture. And the same thing remains true today. We need to know God's word and his will and to submit to it in order to influence positively other cultures. But it's costly. My own first year at university was very challenging. I was a first-generation uni student, and I came from a small Norfolk village up to the big bad city of London as a pretty naive teenager, really, uh, although I did have uh, six years' experience of, of knowing Christ as my Lord. And I remember clearly a conversation in Freshers' Week at a social event where I was chatting with a couple of guys when a uh, topic of conversation that's as controversial now as it was in the 1970s came up. And I said something along the lines of, I didn't think that was a good way to live your life. Oh, why is that, they asked. Because the Bible says so, I replied. Their faces changed immediately. And they looked at one another aghast, and one of them said to me, if that's your reason, we pity you. And they turned away to engage with presumably less pitiable party-goers than myself. Now that incident, and a few others like it, praise God, rather than crushing my faith, made me determined to check if my understanding of the Bible was correct. And if so, what the reasons might be why the Bible says it and how the issues might be explained to others in a way that could convey biblical truth and start to overcome such blind prejudice against the Bible as I witnessed um, that evening. 
Now, it's this type of um, situation, I think, and this was why God gave the four friends here learning and understanding. And to Daniel, we read that he specifically gave understanding in the interpretation of visions and of dreams. And that was to play such a vital role in saving their lives uh, later on in the story. And eventually bringing even Nebuchadnezzar himself in chapter four of the book to praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. All his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. And certainly with a a pretty crushing psychotic breakdown uh, that he experienced. He, he knew what he was talking about at that point. And all of this eventually stemmed uh, from what we read in verse 19 here, that the king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And notice that Daniel deliberately here uses their Hebrew names, I think, to indicate that their true identity as the children of God had not been lost in the attempts to assimilate them into Babylonian ways. And at the end of the chapter, Daniel, in, I think, a somewhat understated way, just says that he was there until the first year of King Cyrus of Persia. And he outlasted both Nebuchadnezzar and his successor, Belshazzar, and indeed saw the end of the Babylonian uh, empire to the Persians under Cyrus, as we heard about this morning. And in the early Christian era, the apostle Peter takes up this theme of alienation in his day when the Christians were suffering persecution from the might of the Roman Empire. And he echoes the resolve of Daniel defiling, uh, resolving not to defile himself in a pagan culture when he writes this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he visits us. That is what Daniel and his friends did in pagan Babylon and eventually caused even the pagan king to glorify God. And that is what Christ calls each and every one of us to do in our day. So let's resolve afresh, not to be defiled by the things in our own culture we know to be wrong, but to live for the glory of the Christ who gave his life for us. He is able to save us to the uttermost and whatever situation we are in, and he is worthy of no less than our love and devotion and service of him. Before uh, the band come back and uh, Fred introduces our final song, I wonder if we might have a, a moment just of reflection and asking ourselves if there is something that we know in our hearts the Lord is saying to us that we must resolve uh, 
to sort out uh, that he might be able to use us for his glory. Let's just have a moment of quiet.